one of the breakthrough moments in my career was to have been appointed by President Obama to serve as his chair of the Advisory Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I had to pull all that I had learned together, all my leadership skills during that time of service. And so I think that was a major point in my career. Welcome to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores exceptional career success stories, inspiring and insightful personal brand journeys that answer the question, are you coffee or are you Starbucks? Fascinating conversations with leaders about their career breakthroughs from entertainment, tech, media, and more. You'll learn how they've turned up the volume on their brand to unlock success. First-hand, uncensored, and real, as told by people who've been there. And plenty of inspiration and practical tools to help you lead with your brand every day as you drive towards your next career breakthrough. And now, here's your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Hey everybody, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast, which is the podcast for folks just like you who are looking to turn up the volume, show your value, and lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. Well, it is time to say Happy Lunar New Year, as I know we are smack dab in this great celebration, making sure that we are taking on and welcoming the Year of the Rabbit. And we've got a great guest for Lunar New Year today. It is Daphne Kwok, who is the Vice President, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Asian American and Pacific Islander Audience Strategy at AARP. But before I talk to Daphne, let's continue with our Lead With Your Brand New Year Challenge. Well, we are on week four, which means we're on step four of the Lead With Your Brand system, which is all about keeping up your image. Now, if you have missed out on all of our great tools and worksheets, go to leadwithyourbrand.com slash new year, where you can catch up because in week one, we talked all about defining your career audience. In week number two, we thought about how do we know what we stand for today to ensure that our brand is authentic. And last week, we talked all about refining who we want to be by supersizing our brand attribute words to make sure they are uniquely us and completely ownable. Now is time to keep up your image because quite simply, it is all about packaging yourself. Your brand does not matter if you aren't able to express it in your actions and your behaviors and your look and feel. Now, I will tell you the easy thing is thinking about how you dress or what your environment looks like. Now, those things all need to be done with intentionality. Think about how your clothing, how your Zoom background, how your office space, how does that contribute to your brand image? Now, this isn't about being a fashionista or an interior designer, but what I am saying is you want what people see about you to make sure that it is enhancing and reinforcing the brand that you are trying to project. At minimum, those things need to be neutral, and you always need to watch that what people see is not distracting them from your brand message or showing them something 
something that is the complete opposite. But let's get beyond just the look and the feel. Let's talk about what you actually deliver. We know that great brands utilize a brand filter. So you're probably asking yourself, well, what the heck is a brand filter? Well, quite simply, a brand filter is really an everyday development ladder that helps bring elements that reinforce your career audience's loyalty and reinforce your brand in everything that you do. Now, these precise brand filters help you focus on success. Now, let me give you an example. Years, years ago, I had the chance to work with the amazing team at Bravo as one of their internal consultants, and I was obsessed with one of their shows called Top Chef. And I always remember thinking, you know, it's so wild that Top Chef is the number one food show on cable when it's not even on the Food Channel or the Cooking Channel. Heck, Bravo isn't even a home and garden channel. But suddenly in working with the Bravo team, the amazing Andy Cohen and Francis Barrick, I was able to really learn that Bravo had this precise brand filter. You see, quite simply, they weren't getting themselves focused on the specific genre of show they were doing. They were basically saying, we could do any type of show, we can tell any type of story as long as it is following our brand filter. Now, all brand filters have great table stakes. Those are the things that you must have in order for you to just hit the go button and move forward. And at Bravo, those table stakes used to be that they had to have relatable characters, dramatic storylines, and like attractive 20 to 30 somethings out there, right? And that's just kind of the given for good TV or great reality TV, as we know. But when you looked at Bravo's original brand filter, their next click was really saying that the LGBTQ plus community was represented, that it was simultaneously smart and fun, that it was about upscale, cosmopolitan locales, aspirational environments, that it was unique and innovative, and that it was high-end and sophisticated in production. So if you think at the time what type of food shows were on, think about how the Food Network was back then. They had these old, tired shows like Paula Deen's Home Cooking, right? And every couple of years, she'd spew off and say something racist and disappear and then miraculously come back. But these were kind of just like low production quality shows, right? They were very kind of niche in terms of the style of cooking, and they were very instructional. Bravo basically said, how do we apply that filter? And they suddenly brought in this show that every single person loved. Now, the funny thing is at the same time, there was a great food show over on the Fox network. It was Hell's Kitchen, right? And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I don't even know why a network TV channel would have a food show, but if you think about it, it was Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen, which felt quintessentially Fox, right? Remember, Fox was that renegade fourth network. It was the home of married with children and cops and, you know, in the late 80s, teens having sex on a soap opera like Beverly Hills 90210, and basically, Fox, their brand was about snark, right? Ultimately, Gordon Ramsay is kind of this angry British man that's constantly yelling at you, which seemed eerily familiar to shows like a Simon Cowell on American 
Idol, right? Or all of the Fox animated series, even thinking that Fox had, you know, a very queer LGBTQ plus friendly musical on called Glee. And you're probably thinking, well, that doesn't feel too Fox. But suddenly the Jane Lynch character of Sue Sylvester, the evil cheerleading coach, was that exact same archetype that was on the Fox filter, just simply regendered as female and not being British, but rather being Midwestern. So if you think about it, all the brands around us are taking things that are commodity and packaging them in their unique brand. So I want you to think about what your unique brand is. Now, I've got a great brand filter worksheet for you that's available at leadwithyourbrand.com slash new year. There you can download it and I'm going to help walk you through it. For you to create your brand filter, I want you to again base this in reality and what you're already great at. So I want you to think back over the past two years, what are at least three big projects that you are proud of? I want you to just go back. You probably just, you know, had that performance review conversation looking at at your year-end review from December. What are some of those top things that you and your boss talked about, these are the projects that you want to think about that are quintessentially you. The next step is you've got to figure out what is the secret sauce between those projects, right? What are those things that made them uniquely you? And even though those projects were very different, what are the things that made them uniquely you, right? If you hadn't been part of these projects, how would they have been executed differently, right? Really find out what's that consistent thread that goes through all of those projects, right? So there you can start thinking about your brand filter. So when I look back just even over my career, I have a couple of huge projects that I love to do. If I rack my brain going way back, I remember being on a team, you know, 20 plus years ago at Universal when they were getting ready to open the Revenge of the Mummy attraction at Universal Studios Hollywood. And I was part of a team where we were challenged with how do we get the entire workforce excited about this attraction? and on a strategic road to the mummy. And I came up with this concept that, hey, it's a theme park. We should treat these employees where they actually come through a show, where they get a showtime and they come in and they go through the movie trailer and they have characters that pop out and then that they're dumped into this exciting fair that has our designers from Universal Creative walking them through the miniature model. And our original attractions host would take people into a simulator where they actually sat in seats that were placed just like the ride vehicle to watch. And we had belly dancers and Egyptian food and all sorts of different things. And then I think to a whole other project when the head of Symphony at NBC Universal helped me to hop in because Steve Burke, the CEO at the time, wanted to do a idea contest or a gong show. And I suddenly thought, hey, you know what? We are a huge film and TV company. If we're going to solicit ideas from employees, we should make it like a competition reality show and they should submit and we should whittle it down and we should fly the top 20 people to New York City and we should have them do confessionals and give them training and behind the scenes action and then set them up and do the entire thing as if it was like The Voice. In fact, we called it the idea with a huge show and chairs and confetti cannons and gigantic checks. Well, if I look at these two 
two very different types of projects at two different types of businesses, when I look at those consistent themes, you know what? It was all about bringing the Hollywood experiential flavor to the project. It was all about it being hyper-interactive in two-way, not talking at people, but involving people in the storytelling. And even if I go back to the table stakes, I can say, hey, you know what? All of my best work has been done when it is executive sponsored. So when I build out my brand filter, I really look at those table stakes. It's got to be executive sponsored and it's got to be driving some type of business results. And that goes for me, whether I'm working internally at a company or externally with my consulting clients. Then as I go past that, I know that everything I do needs to be super internal. Interactive, whether I'm delivering it virtually or I'm doing that in person. That means if I'm in person, I might be jumping out into the crowd. I might be bringing people up onto stage. If I'm in a virtual space, it might mean I'm doing polling and bringing people on a confessional cam in Zoom and doing breakout sessions. I know that every single project that I do has to have some type of wow factor, something that is surprising and unexpected and feels like you're watching a movie or a TV show or being on a great theme park attraction. Now, I have many more elements, but these are the starting points for you to create a brand filter. Now, once you've defined that brand filter, you can apply that to any project. Now, you may not apply every single element of that filter, but you are going to be able to have the chance to make sure that even those projects that you're not super passionate about, that you don't necessarily love, but you know, there's things that we have to do, you can package it in a way that screams your name is authentically you and you have people walking away saying, wow, we could have never done that without you. Well, let's get to our amazing guest today celebrating Lunar New Year. It is Daphne Kwok, who is the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Asian American and Pacific Islander Audience Strategy at AARP. Now, Daphne's work empowers Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to choose how they live as they age. She brings to AARP her experience as a, quote, leader of leaders through her community service in promoting and empowering the AAPI community. Now, Daphne was appointed by President Barack Obama in 2010 to chair his advisory commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. The commission really served as the eyes and ears of the community, advising Obama and the full federal government about the issues impacting the AAPI community. Now, Daphne met with AAPI communities throughout the country, connecting them to regional federal agencies. This opened an opportunity for the agency to learn about these communities and to acquaint them with their programs and services. We'll be back in just a few moments with Daphne Kwok. For over 25 years, Jason has coached, trained, and developed thousands of leaders and executives, helping them achieve their next career breakthrough. He's a featured speaker at global conferences and companies to help everyone bring their best authentic self to work, show their value, and lead with their brand every day. Get more tips and tools at leadwithyourbrand.com. 
and we are back. We have a fabulous guest with us today. It is Daphne Kwok, who is the Vice President, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Asian American and Pacific Islander Audience Strategy at AARP. Daphne, what is going on? Well, thank you, Jason. You got that title. I know it's a really, really long title, but uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a, what a great way to start the new year, 2023. The year of the rabbit, the year of the yeah, rabbit. I know right now, Daphne, let's let's dive right on in. Tell me, I know that you are constantly out in the community. You are working with stakeholders. You are meeting people. When you first meet people, how do you introduce yourself and explain who you are and what exactly it is that you do? Well, I love to share with people that I'm Daphne Kwok from Annandale, Virginia, and that I'm actually live inside the D.C. Beltway uh, because that really epitomizes really the work that I've done, which is literally inside the D.C. Beltway and what people might think that kind of work might be, which really ends up being the political work. Absolutely. And so I know that you are all in a place of influence. So talk to me. What are the cool things that you are working on at AARP today? Well, one of the things I have been at AARP for about 10 years right now, and one of the main issue areas AARP addresses is caregiving. Uh, and it's one area which I know nobody wants to talk about. No one wants to really talk about end of life, but each and every one of us is either a caregiver will need care or has been a caregiver. And so I, my work has really been trying to norm the conversation about people being caregivers for their loved ones, mm. uh, whether it's they're older or they're younger, uh, whether they're immediate family or not immediate family. So I'm really working to try to norm the conversation about caregiving. And so uh, I'm living it myself. I'm so fortunate that my 97-year-old grandfather, uh, my 97-year-old father, wow. who celebrates his birthday on Valentine's Day, he's a Valentine's baby, Ooh. you know, that uh, we are so fortunate to have had him in really very great health for until the last year. But now I'm very much a caregiver myself. So I'm sort of practicing what I'm preaching now. Absolutely. And so, Daphne, tell me, for so many Americans are, are going through this, what are some things that we all can do to help normalize this conversation about caregiving that kind of feels really awkward, especially when you're talking, you know, with your parents or your grandparents or, or aunts and uncles? Well, it is always tough. Nobody wants to talk about, yeah, and how, how would you like to end the rest of your life, right? Uh, but I think one of the things, and, and I think COVID really gave us that opportunity to really talk about very serious issues, right? And that, for many, the, it ended in loss of life, mm. um, and mental health, social isolation issues, which most people would never talk about. But I think the one silver lining behind COVID, it just uh, got everybody in this country, all Americans and all throughout the world to talk about these issues. But one of the things I like to talk about uh, with people is like, you know, have you started to have the conversation with your loved ones? Uh, do you have the team of people together? Uh, one of the things I like to share with people is that ARP has a prepare to care booklet that literally leads people step by step. And, you know, if people don't have it, they could download it or get a hard copy. We've even translated it into to Chinese and to um, Spanish. We have one for the LGBT community, for the veterans community, for the African-American community, uh, and really start to have people start to think about this. Uh, what are the resources in their area? Uh, and uh, and also ARP is a fantastic 
Facebook uh, caregiving group, which I personally am on because I'm reading through that and getting great uh, recommendations for whether it's diapers or whether it's security systems. Uh, so there's a lot of good information that we have to accept that we are caregivers. So we have to go look for that caregiving information. Yeah. Well, Daphne, thank you for everything that you're doing and everything that AARP is doing. I'm a little scared because I'm turning 50 later this year. So I'm dreading getting my uh, <laughs> my, my AARP uh, envelope in the mail. But Daphne, talk to me a little bit about your career. You know, when you think back, what have been some of the key breakthrough moments that brought you to this place of being at the AARP, which is just, you know, kind of second to none when we think about advocacy for marginalized communities? Well, I often talk about how it's quite ironic the role that I've come to be. Uh, I have become a, a national spokesperson for the Asian American Pacific Island community throughout the years. Um, and uh, for those that knew me as a very young person, I was actually very shy. Mm. Uh, and even through college, I was I feared classes in which you were actually graded upon class participation. Ooh. I, you know, I, I didn't know it was anxiety at that time, but it was probably anxiety. I just dreaded going to class because I was just so fearful of speaking up. And uh, which is really ironic because in my career, it's ended up that I have become a spokesperson have, you know, been on major network TV uh, interviews, uh, testified before Congress, you know, spoken in the Rose Garden uh, in front of President Clinton and uh, my colleagues. And so I've been given platforms to actually have public audiences uh, to be able to talk about the needs of the Asian American community. Uh, and actually, I think one of the best compliments I ever received was from one of my aunties, um, who said, Daphne, out of all the kids of your generation, I never expected you to be where you are today, <laughs> which is a, a national Asian American leader. Because she said, Daphne, you're the quietest of all the kids. And it's really true. I was the quietest one. I never spoke up. And so for her to see me in the mainstream press or Asian press or knowing that I'm speaking here and there to the public or blah, 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 or to, at the White House or Capitol, she's like blown away. Yeah. Uh, and so I, to me, and I think to my even to my own family and my parents, I think they're a bit shocked themselves. <laughs> um, so you never know how you might turn out to be. But I think... Finding my voice, literally, figuratively, finding my voice, how important a voice is. And that's one of the things I like to share with people. It's like the communication skills, how critical it is to be able to speak uh, in public and articulately, uh, to be able to write succinctly. I, I was a poor writer, even through college. Uh, but uh, after I got to the organization of Chinese Americans and became the executive director, I realized you don't have time to uh, have three, four drafts of a press release, right? You have like two minutes to put something together. Yeah. Um, so uh, those are some of the skills I learned quickly along the way. Yeah. And so Daphne, you talked a little bit about being able to find your voice and then be able to sort of communicate that on, on the platform. How did you actually find your voice? What were some of the things that helped you kind of hone in and have that Daphne uh, quack that could be out on the platform and talking in the Rose Garden at the White House and, you know, advocating on TV for communities? 
Well, I will tell you that in 19, this is dating me, but in 1990, I became the executive director of the Organization of Chinese Americans, a national Asian American civil rights organization that we worked in partnership with like the NAACP, at that time, the National Council of La Raza, the American Jewish Committee, all part of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. And uh, in 1990, I was executive director and I had one assistant. The Japanese American Citizens League, which is much older than OCA, and was headquartered in San Francisco, but had a DC lobbyist and one assistant. So in 1990, I like to tell people there were exactly four of us working the entire national AAPI civil rights agenda here in DC. Wow. So, you know, that meant really two of us because two were in the office as assistants. So that just meant there were two of us out there. At the time, it was Karen Narasaki, Paul Igasaki that were out there in the community with me. And so we would go to meetings, you know, with the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, or we would go to meetings on Capitol Hill with members of Congress. And it was always JACL and myself. And if one of us wasn't there, the other one better be there because otherwise there'd be no Asian American representation. And I realized at that time, especially if I was the only one in the room, if I didn't speak up, our Asian American voice and issues would not even be on the agenda. Mm. Uh, And so I literally was forced to speak up. I was literally forced to speak up at press conferences because if I didn't speak up, nobody would speak up. So it was very interesting. I was literally forced into it. And I realized uh, the burden that if I didn't speak up, then we wouldn't have a voice there. Uh, And that's how I got into it. And so it's really a practice over practice, hyperventilating, nearly hyperventilating, you know, at at one uh, event I was at, I was speaking at the Democratic National Convention Party, and it was a relatively small group. And at the time, as Mayor Dinkins of New York was there with the Asian American delegation of Congress, there probably only 30, 40 people in the room. I get up to speak. I nearly hyper, I literally nearly hyperventilated. I like was so nervous. I'm like, oh my God. I pulled myself together to get some articulate words out, but you learn real fast. Yeah. And Daphne, tell me, what were some of your other career breakthrough moments between being the ED of OCA and then joining AARP? Well, I would say that one of the breakthrough moments in my career was to have been appointed by President Obama to serve as his chair of the Advisory Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I had to pull all that I had learned together, all my leadership skills during that time of service. And so I think that was a major point in my career. Of course, extremely proud to have served the first African-American president. Absolutely. And, and so how did that happen? I mean, do, do you get like a phone call and it's like the White House is on the line? How, how do you get invited? What was that like? Well, one of the things, you know, I had been involved in Democratic Party politics actually from the 1980s, which is a bit ironic as well, because literally as I've lived inside the Beltway and my father was a career civil servant with the Veterans Administration, we never talked as a Chinese American, Asian American family growing up in the 60s and 70s, we never talked about politics. I don't even know what a Democrat or Republican was at that time. And then to end up getting drawn in by community work, community service uh, leaders that I was working with that were involved in the Democratic Party. Sure, I'll come along. Yeah, sure. We need to get Asians to vote. And then getting very heavily involved in Democratic Party politics. So 
uh, being a community leader. And then for President Obama, I actually took off two, three months and volunteered to work on his campaign out of the headquarters in Chicago mm. to help the Asian American effort. Uh, and so from that, uh, being a known quantity, I would say, um, that when it came time around for appointments, yes, uh, you know, it did get... As part of a process, yes, I did get a call and say, we'd like to have you chair. And my mouth sort of just dropped. You know, I said, oh, not for me, right? It's like, oh, it can't be me. Out of all of the, you know, qualified Asian American Pacific Islanders in the community, really? Like, but so that's how it happened. And and so talk to me, what, what was it like serving on that committee with, you know, the administration? And what were maybe even some of the tough things that you had to do there? Well, I think one of the things is that, so we had a staff, very, very well-abled staff. Kieran Ahuja was executive director of the uh, of the commission, of the initiative. And I think, you know, one of the things is that's so difficult working in the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander communities, we're very, very diverse. There are 30, 40, 50 different ethnicities, language issues still, representation, as we always talk about representation. How do we make sure... And I was very cognizant of this. Even when they asked me to chair, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm Chinese-American. And most of the the chairs in the past have been Chinese-Americans. Like, we got to have representation. It can't be all Chinese-Americans always chairing the President's Advisory Commission. Yeah. And so, uh, Daphne, tell me, when you were a little kid, what is it that you wanted to be when you grew up? I act well. Uh, I wanted to be a ballerina because I saw that <laughs> ballerinas were so beautiful, right? So yes, of course, I took ballet, and I have to admit, I was always a little bit more on the pudgy side. So my Russian ballerina teacher would always say, "Suck your tummy in, suck your tummy in." Uh, I, I never got to toe. I didn't get very far. So uh, I don't think ballet was in my future. Uh, but I also really wanted to be a Montessori school teacher because I actually Ooh. went to Montessori school. And I so did too. You, oh, wow. Really? I'm a Montessori kid. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah, we got something in common there. I think it was a fantastic method. And I think from even Montessori um, teachings – uh, I think that's also given me and my brothers, because my two younger brothers also went through the ability to work with people of all ages, right? Because there are no grades in Montessori, so sixth grade or seventh grade, but we are mixed with younger kids and older kids. I think that really helped us in the work that we do, that I can work with younger people and I can work with my elders. Mm. Now, Daphne, let's talk a little bit about your leadership style and your leadership brand. Give me three words that would describe your leadership brand. Well, one, uh, and it's on my resume, is a leader of leaders. Uh, I think that is uh, how people see me. Uh, I think because, as I say, I've been in uh, the work for a long time. Uh, So uh, a leader of leaders and being able to pull our community together. I would say that one of the roles that I played um, I chaired the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans, and this was in the uh, sort of towards the late 1990s, where within the Asian American community, we realized we needed to really come together with one voice. And so that was an, an 
a coalition of Asian American organizations, primarily advocacy organizations, that were coming together that needed to come together to speak with one voice. So I was voted by my peers, all of them that I highly, highly regarded, to be the first chair. And to me, that I think hopefully I was able to set that grounding and today, and Kappa is still alive and well and much larger in scope as well. Yeah. So I love the word or the term leader of leaders. Give me two other words that you would use to describe your professional brand. I would say that one is uh, nurturing. Uh, I'm very nurturing. And so uh, to me, working with the younger generation, I keep saying that I got to step out of this sometime. I just turned 16. (laughs) Last year was year of the tiger. It was my year. It's like, uh, okay, you know, uh, we have to make sure the younger generation has opportunities. But for me, working with the younger generation and really to be able to help them uh, further along in their career and to really open doors. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Congress, the former Congressman Mike Honda of California, he always said, we have to open the door and then leave it wide open. Mm. Uh, and I truly believe that. We have to leave it really, really wide open. We need to constantly bring people up through the ranks, give them opportunities. So for me, I've been so blessed to be able to get, be given platforms and opportunities to speak all over at all different levels. But, you know, yes, that's nice, but I want to be able to give other people the opportunity to speak. So I'm always looking to... Uh, parcel out the speaking opportunities to um, uh, colleagues, friends, uh, give them the opportunity to hone in on their public speaking skills. Uh, One of my colleagues uh, from AARP Georgia, Jenny Jensen, who uh, a year ago served with me, I said to her, okay, we were going to do an event uh, on caregiving and with Richard Louie of MSNBC, uh, who is one of your former colleagues, I think. And uh, Yes, I love Richard. Who has been working very closely with us on caregiving. I was able to get him to tell his story about his caregiving for his father. So I said, Jenny, okay, you, you facilitate this virtual session. You be the moderator with Richard. And I took, totally took her out of her comfort zone. She was she was scared <laughs> stiff, but now she thanks me for that, right? Opportunity to be able to also find her voice. And I think it's so important that we give others that opportunity. Yeah, and I love that your brand of nurturing is helping to bring people up, but not protecting them so much that you're, you're robbing them of opportunities uh, because uh, they've got to get out of their comfort zone, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that, you know, just uh, the last week I had the opportunity, one of the young leaders, Filipino-American leaders that I've been able to have work with me at AARP, he was just sworn in as the first Filipino-American at the state level for New York as a state assembly member, Stephen Raga. And to see him sworn in by Senator Chuck Schumer, I was just sitting there with tremendous, tremendous pride, just so thrilled. Uh, He has worked so hard uh, and is truly a community servant leader. And so for me, people often ask me, how can I stay in the community all these years? And I honestly have to say it's to be able to see the people I've worked with attain, you know, positions or attain uh, recognition for the work that they continue to give back into community to me is most fulfilling. 
Mm. Now, you have one more word, Daphne. You had leader of leaders, nurturing. And what's other one other word that you would use to describe yourself? Uh, I would say uh, committed. Ooh. Committed would be the third word. I, I, I sort of fell into my work in the Asian-American community. I grew up in Annandale, Virginia, which is northern Virginia, Fairfax County, in the 1960s, 1970s. It was primarily a Caucasian-dominant uh, community. Uh, my brothers and I were really the only students of color growing up in, in our schools, even through high school. And it wasn't until college. Uh, I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut and uh, 600 incoming freshmen. It was the largest number of Asian, Asian-American students at that time. And I was in the class of 1984. Uh, 29 of us were Asian, Asian-American. And to me, I was in heaven because it's like, oh, my God, I've never had 29 you know, classmates that were Asian or Asian-American. Uh, so for me, I... I thought I was just having fun and socializing by getting involved in the Asian student group, Asian American student group. Uh, of course, then I started to take leadership role and headed it up for two years. Uh, but that's where it all started, being committed to the Asian American community and communities of color, I would say. I truly believe that we all have to work together with the African American, Hispanic community. Uh, and I didn't realize at the time in school, yes, we were doing that because we were working with the black and Hispanic students uh, and that all the skills, and I tell people all the skills, I thought I was just putting parties together, putting events together, but those skills, right? Leading meetings, having an agenda, fighting for budget, you know, advocating for more students of color, talking to the president of the institution. Uh, I didn't realize what all that was, but now transferred over into my real life work, my career. It's been all of that. Uh, and so talking, whether it's talking to the president of the university or president, talking to the president of the United States, <laughs> it ended up all being in the same path. Yeah, yeah. So I love that you describe yourself as a leader of leaders, that you're nurturing and you're committed. So Daphne, are those attributes that you feel you've always been or have they evolved over time? to be who you are today? Well, I think the leader of leader uh, evolved absolutely over time. But I would have to say, even in high school, I, my brother and I started, um, we didn't have enough Asian students or Asian Americans, so we started an international club. Um, so that was, I think, <laughs> leadership, you know. Um, uh, but I have to really credit my parents, who, as immigrants from China, Right. So they're first generation immigrants to the U.S. being extremely progressive for that age generation, uh, getting involved in nonprofit organizations. We did go to Montessori school, private school. So they served on the board. We, of course, were violent students, too. So joined the uh, youth symphony. And so they served on the board. So they were very much involved in the broader community as volunteers, as uh, officers for these nonprofit organizations. So we growing up, we're all part of that. Uh, and so being involved uh, was very much part of our work. So, but becoming a leader, absolutely growing into it and um, is one that I, I would never have thought I would be. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Daphne, I know, 
our style, our brand, sometimes that doesn't always mesh with other people, right? It's not always everyone else's cup of tea. Tell me about a time where you maybe got some tough feedback from someone uh, around your brand or your style and how you handled that or evolved or, or chose not to. Well, I would say I've been fortunate. I don't think anyone has necessarily um, criticized my brand. I would say, though, that I do need to continuously put myself out there. I would say that I am not necessarily a verbose person in settings, right? Um, I only speak up if there's something that needs to be said. Uh, And people might see that as being too quiet. Uh, So it's interesting uh, how uh, people may view me um, because I'm not one that would be one that would be a constant talker in a meeting, right? Uh, I wanted to be able to add uh, to a discussion um, something that's meaningful. So I know that's something I need to continue to work on because I think I, you know, you do have to have a presence. You have to Uh, be recognized as well, too. And so that's something I I continue to still need to work on. Mm, Absolutely. So a couple of uh, fun questions to close us out. Daphne, we've been talking a little bit about your brand. What is your favorite brand as a consumer? What can't you live without? Well, I would say one brand, it's uh, which I would love to be able to afford to buy. My most favorite food is abalone. Ah. And uh, there's a, and I can't remember the brand, but it's in a pink can. And growing up as a child, my parents would give it to me as a birthday gift because at that time it was already like $25 a can. At this point, it's already over $100 a can because abalone is so expensive. Uh, It's a product of Mexico, but all I remember, it is a pink can. And everyone uh, that grew up at the time is like, oh, yeah, the pink canned abalone. which is now so expensive we can't even afford to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So now we all know what to get you as a gift, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) I'd be willing to take it. uh, And Daphne, tell me, if you were a type of car, what type of car would you be? Oh, a Jaguar. Ooh, and why are you like a Jaguar? Because it's so sleek. It's very, uh, what the old, I'd say the old-fashioned Jaguar, not the current, but the old fashion one it's like it was so sleek it was so um stylized and it was uh, sort of it was, you know, unassuming but you know classy mm. I mean, very classy i always loved the old jaguars Ooh, i love that and finally daphne what's the best career advice that you'd like to pass on to our listeners the one, uh, in addition, since I said that communications was so important, but this other one I would say is never burn bridges. You, you always hear that, never burn bridges. It's really true. You never know how people will come around. And one example I'll just quickly give is that when I was uh, nominated by President Obama to be his chair, you have to fill out a lot of paperwork, uh, get vetted by the White House. And so uh Office of Presidential Personnel at the White House shepherds your paperwork. It does take a long time. And as it turns out, the one that was in charge of my paperwork work was a former intern. So it's like, <laughs> thank, thank goodness I never pissed her off because otherwise she could have lost my paperwork and I would never have been able to serve the president. So, you know, and having her shepherd my paperwork, it's like, 
oh, and did you get my paperwork? Is everything in order? Is everything okay? <laughs> you know, you guys still working on my paperwork? <laughs> <laughs> so never burn bridges because you never know where people will end up. Exactly. Well, Daphne, it has been a blast having a great uh, conversation with you. Tell us, where can we learn more about all of the great work that you are doing at AARP? Well, you can join us on our Facebook page, the AARP AAPI Facebook page, uh, or on AARP's uh, .org backslash AAPI uh, has our work as well, too. But we would love to be able to share more information about, as we all age, you know, how can we make the best of our lives? Yes. Well, thank you for everything that you are doing for our community. And it was great chatting with you. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. And we'll be back in just a few moments with my final thoughts. Are you tired of not being recognized for your work? Are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level? The Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program will help you take control of your career, develop your own unique brand, and catapult you to a whole new level of success. You are a top performer, and the Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program is what you need to get you there. Visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how. Wow, what an awesome conversation with Daphne Kwok, the Vice President, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Asian American and Pacific Islander Audience Strategy at AARP. You know, I just love Daphne's story, and more importantly, I love the work that she does to impact our community. The thing that really stood out from our conversation was Daphne's real strong drive to make sure that she is nurturing and bringing up the next level of leaders. You know, sometimes it's interesting that we think being a leader means focusing all on yourself, but really being a great leader and being a great brand is being in service of others. You want to be in service of your career audience, and you want to be in service of the next generation that's going to support you in your career, and more importantly, in life in the future. Now, one of my favorite, favorite bosses throughout my entire career was Larry Kurzweil, who led Universal Studios Hollywood theme park for over 20 years. And I remember being in a meeting one time, and we were talking about how to deliver great guest service. And Larry ultimately said, you know what? Selfish organizations cannot serve. And the same thing goes with your brand. And I think that's what Daphne hit on. Selfish brands and selfish people can't serve, and ultimately your brand needs to be in service of others. It's all about how you provide impact and value to the people around you so that they can bring you in. Well, if you loved what you heard today, make sure that you are following us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll deliver a brand new show every single week. Make sure that you are checking us out at leadwithyourbrand.com slash new year so that you can get all of your tools and worksheets to jumpstart your brand new year and your brand for 2023. Check me out on social media. I'm at Jason Patria on all platforms, and most importantly, as you think about your brand, don't be a boring old commodity like coffee. Make sure that you are a super premium brand like Starbucks. 
You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at leadwithyourbrand.com.